Hi, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of Radio Free Acton, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. My name is Mark Vandermoss, and I'm your guest host this week. Our regular host, Carolyn Roberts, is enjoying a well-earned vacation after a lot of hard work on the podcast over the last few months. Carolyn, we hope you're enjoying sun and sand somewhere and also your complete lack of deadlines. In the meantime, we've got a great July 4th episode lined up for you here. We're going to start off with a conversation between Acton's Director of Communications, John Caritas, and Ray Nostein, the editor at the Civitas Institute and also former managing editor here at Acton of our Religion and Liberty magazine. They'll be talking about the religious and Puritan roots of the American Revolution. Following that, we're going to share a portion of a lecture delivered at Acton University 2018, Acton's main conference which ran this year from June 19 through 22 here in downtown Grand Rapids, Michigan. We'll be sharing a portion of Susan Harper's lecture entitled The Hebrew Republic and the Origins of America's Constitutional Liberty. That's nicely in keeping with our July 4th Independence Day theme. Harper is the Director of Strategic Partnerships at the American Bible Society, and we'll be sharing and reviewing some recent scholarship that suggests that the United States was founded primarily on a biblical rather than a secular political concept of republicanism. So without further ado, let's get this podcast rolling as John Caritas talks with Ray Notstein on the religious and Puritan roots of the American Revolution here on Radio Free Acton. To the pulpit, the Puritan pulpit, we owe the moral force which won our independence. That's from John Wingate Thornton, and that's quoted in Liberty Fund's two-volume edition of Political Sermons of the American Founding Era, 1730 to 1805. Welcome, I'm John Caritas, and that's the subject of our conversation today. My guest is Ray Notstein, who is editor at the Civitas Institute. He is uh, significantly a former managing editor of Acton's Religion and Liberty magazine, and Ray joins us today from Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina. Welcome to the show, Ray. Glad to be here. And uh, that was a great quote from Liberty Fund. I mean, in terms of celebrating the Declaration of Independence, we would like to know uh, more about its influences anytime that we look at it. And I think one of the great influences, sometimes we think of the the American founders and in that revolutionary period being sandwiched between the first great awakening and the second great awakening. And so a lot of scholars look at that time and they say, Hey, I mean, that's, uh, that's the peak era of enlightenment. And, you know, these, this other religious stuff didn't play play a role, but we know from, from that Liberty fund publication and other publications, just how much the American founders were influenced um, by the religious period, the, the Christian preaching, particularly in New England among the congregational ministers. I mean, they were very much influenced by um, sort of this Presbyterian form of government that eventually grew out of the Reformation. And so people were, you know, they had a role in leading their churches, and it wasn't just um, pastoral leadership, but it was a leadership of the people. And so I think it's really just important to kind of take a look and glance at some of the messages that these these men were talking about in that day and how much of an impact it had in that era. I mean, these American founders, even some of them weren't Christian. Many were Orthodox Christian, but some weren't. And But the, the literacy of the Bible was just um, huge at that time. I mean, uh, they all read the same things. They were reading Montesquieu Locke, but they all knew their Bible backward and forward, whether they were a believer or not. So, I mean, this language 
was critical to that founding period. Yeah, and what and I must admit, um, I was surprised by the extent of influence these ministers had in this founding era. And once I started uh, digging into it, uh, it was a real eye-opener. The, the debate today seems to be, oh, were they deists or were they not believers? Were they right. Orthodox Christians? But back then, um, Bible literacy, as you point out, was widespread. This was in the air. It w- these sermons were being published. They were being sold. They were being scooped up and discussed. Um, and they were among the most influential people during the founding era, these ministers. I found another volume. Let me just read one thing, um, digging around the excellent Acton Library. I found another book called They Preached Liberty, an anthology of timely quotations from New England ministers of the American Revolution on the subject of liberty, its source, nature, obligations, types, and blessings. And this is a volume uh, published in 1941. It's sort of excerpts and compilation of a lot of these sermons by Franklin P. Cole. And in his uh, introductory essay, he talks about a, a preacher called uh, by the name of Jonathan Mayhew, who was uh, very well known and widely followed uh, during this period. Quote, For a generation before 1776, the congregations of New England had heard and read many declarations of independence. Sermon after sermon referred to the, quote, natural rights of life, liberty, and property. But to Jonathan Mayhew belongs the distinction of being the first of the revolutionary preacher patriots. His sermon of 1750 has long and appropriately been called, quote, the morning gun of the American Revolution, end quote. Well, that tells me that uh, this man was followed closely and had vast influence uh, well beyond uh, his own pulpit. Absolutely. There was, there's a great book. Um, listeners, if they haven't read it or they're not familiar with it, they should check it out, too, called um, by David Hackett Fisher called Paul Revere's Ride. And it just chronicles what's going on in New England right before the revolution, um, you know, just a year before the revolution. Um, became more formalized through the Declaration of Independence. The fighting was already going on. But it talks about the ministers and the preachers in those communities who took up guns against the crown. And I, I think that's very important because sometimes we think of, you know, today ministers, you know, whether they're just maybe a chaplain in the military, they're not involved in any of the fighting. They tend to be – sometimes it's – even a lot of evangelical um, traditions tend to be more pacifist, not all but some. And so I think that's an important component is that they took up arms along with the people that they were living beside and the congregations that they led. And um, I think that's a great um, Mayhew. Uh, there's a great quote that I pulled up um, just from that same publication um, by um, his name is Samuel Miller. Teach them to acknowledge the God of heaven as their king and they will despise submission to earthly despots. God never gives men up to slave till they lose their national virtue and abandon themselves to slavery. Richard Salter. Um, there's just so many great uh, little lines that I think uh, plays into exactly what you're talking about. And uh, Mayhew, of course, uh, was friends with the Adams. And a lot of scholars believe that, you know, when they did the edits to the Declaration of Independence, Jefferson put property, you know, life, liberty, property first. But Adams changed that to happiness. And a lot of people think that had to do with the influence of Mayhew and other New England um, uh, ministers, this, this idea of happiness. And, you know, we understand more 
in um, the act and speak of human flourishing, it, that's what it really meant. And it was in terms of uh, not just your property, but your whole life of your, of your flourishing played an impact. And a lot of scholars think that Adams, from listening to these congregations and listen, listening to these ministers, um, changed that word to happiness. Yeah, they were close friends, they were intimates, they uh, moved in the same circles. And these ministers also preached a gospel of freedom. They um, understood the human person as one who is uh, created free, and uh, drawing that in along with uh, uh, English constitutional history, um, they put that together in a very potent way. Talk about um, some of the—I mean, they weren't all of one mind. Talk about some of the divisions, uh, some of the denominational tensions or, or antagonisms, uh, and talk about how widespread uh, belief was in the colonies at that time. Yeah, there was quite a bit of division. I mean, that was one of the reasons that Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence, to try to bring unity to the colonies, because certainly they were reaching out to foreign governments, but they were also trying to create more unity in, in the colonies. And there was a lot of religious division. Anglicans. Um, were persecuting, um, you know, just here in, where I live in North Carolina, there were, there were Anglicans in the Crown was persecuting. Uh, we, they had a thing called the Regulator, uh, the, the Regulator Movement in North Carolina, and it was yeoman farmer who were typically, typically um, more, lo, you know, sort of a Protestants or Baptist by nature, or maybe Presbyterian. And we think of regulators today as terms of, um, you know, they went out and, um, you know, the government regulates you, but they were trying to regulate the Crown in terms of. Um, fighting for more rights, for more liberties. Um, there were a lot of divisions with Quakers. Some of them were hung. Some of them had their property taken because they were pacifists. There's a great um, anecdote. Uh, in Virginia, uh, John Sullivan, who was an American general, he rounded up uh, some young Quaker men in, I think it was Fairfax County, Virginia, and then forced them, tried to force them to fight with Washington in the Continental Army. And Washington, you know, this kind of shows Washington's for religious liberty that he'll have later on, but he had at the time. He said, I can't take these men in my army. They don't want to be here. They don't want to fight. So you had instances like that where there was a lot of persecution. Certainly, um, some Catholics had been persecuted in the colony for a long time. In Maryland, they had a few more freedoms, but in a lot of colonies, they weren't allowed to hold office. They weren't allowed to be Catholic priests in Massachusetts and other colonies. So there were pretty, there, there was a lot of persecution. And, and there were some people that were worried about the revolution, that the, the crown, if, if we remove the crown from the colonies, then there could be more persecution. That really didn't end up being the case, but it was a legitimate concern because, you know, you had state, you had state religions in certain states, and you had the crown, too, with the revolution going on. They wanted more Anglican bishops and more of an Anglican influence to keep a you know, hold on some of their loyalists in the colonies. Uh, you mentioned biblical literacy uh, early on in this conversation. That's important because you have to know what the references are to make any sense of these sermons, correct? Yeah. Here's a quote from uh, Charles Turner of Duxbury, and he says, quote, The scriptures cannot rightly be expounded without explaining them in a manner friendly to the cause of freedom, end quote. And in this essay here from uh, They Preach Liberty, uh, the essay, the essayist notes that uh, the ministers, as a result of their classical education, were also well-grounded in the Greek and Roman authors, Plato, Aristotle, Thucydides, uh, the Latin author Cicero, Virgil, Seneca, as well as the more modern political writers like John Locke and 
um, poets and other writers, Milton Sidney, Montesquieu, Butler, uh, they were very well grounded in, in, in these um, uh, core Western uh, works uh, as well as scriptures. So it's really remarkable to see these references throughout these sermons. Absolutely. I think you brought up a great point, too, is we kind of forget how well-educated uh, some of them were. They had all gone to uh, many of these ministers in, in New England um, I think I remember reading, I don't know if it was in the, the religious, uh, the Liberty Fund volume or, or another volume, but it talked about, you know, like 90-something percent of these guys had a college degree or 80-something percent high. They were very well educated. Many of them went to Harvard and Yale. I mean, back then it was a much better school than, you know, better school than it is now in terms of ingraining you in the classics. They were well-read. And I think an important point to read is that they were reading all of the same stuff as the founders. You brought that up. They, they were familiar with Locke. They were obviously familiar with the scriptures at a deep level, but they were also familiar with the the writers in the Scottish Enlightenment. They were right. familiar with the classics, and so people, you know, today we don't read a lot of those same things. That um, you know, there was a there was a common mind, and Jefferson talked about that in the Declaration of Independence. He said, "That's I'm bringing this out to bring an, an expe- his exact quote is like an expression of the American mind, the place before mankind, the common sense of the subject in terms so plain and firm." has to command their assent. I mean, that was his purpose of the Declaration of Independence. And so there really was, even amongst all these religious divisions, a common mind growing. And a lot of that has to do, too, with the First Great Awakening, when, when George Whitfield came over from England mm-hmm. and um, influenced the colonies. There was a lot of religious zeal. And I think out of that grew a very united colonies for the first time, because he was going up from Massachusetts all the way down to Georgia doing revival preaching. And it was very evangelical in the sense that you could you, you would totally recognize the theology today. That had a common factor in bringing the colonies together and bringing them very closely united in their faith. So even some of these people, as disparate as they were from their origins, uh, their line of work, the lives they led, they could be, in a way, knit together through a common understanding of Scripture the way it was preached then. Right, and, um, you know— like you said, and we've kind of emphasized is everybody had a copy of the Bible. Everybody knew it. So when somebody quoted Deuteronomy or they quoted that passage from uh, Leviticus about spreading liberty all throughout the land, or they quoted Second Corinthians things about Second Corinthians about the spirit where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. People knew exactly what that came from. They knew the passage. They knew what it was talking about. And so I think that definitely had an influence in terms of um, rousing the patriot cause, and also just in terms of this whole idea of uniting um, aspects of civil government with natural law. I mean, human nature and natural rights are associated tightly with the theological views of creation and and these virtuous moral living obligations, uh, especially particularly virtue. I mean, that's, that's something that's important then that's not as important now is that they believed Government had to be virtuous. It had to have underpinnings of morality to be successful. I mean, we see that not just from the ministers, but from people like George Washington and John Adams who who say that. I mean, Adams says the Constitution is for a morally and religious people, not because they wanted to have a theocracy or or that you had to be a Christian, but that you had to have moral underpinnings in society for it to sustain itself. And um, you know, I think they were correct in seeing that you know, the lack of virtue today is creating a lot of the division in our own country in, in terms of just sort of uh, having a moral foundation because we're, we're so split apart 
and it's not that all our morality has to be the same, but it does need to have some kind of moral underpinning to sustain society. Yeah, I mean, without that, then politics devolves into the pursuit and exercise of power as an end. And uh, that can be pretty brutal if it's not guided by some overarching sense of virtue, for sure. Well, um, I think this is a, a great subject for Independence Day. I want to thank you for uh, coming on the show today and uh, helping us understand this. Um, again, I highly recommend Liberty Fund's uh, two-volume work on political servants of the American founding. And this other book, I don't know if it's, if it's uh, still in print, but maybe you can find it in a used bookstore. It's called They Preached Liberty by Franklin P. Cole, 1941. Thank you, Ray. Good talking to you. Thank you. Um, enjoy your Independence Day, and uh, God bless America. Yep, same to you. Happy Independence Day. Now we move on to part two of our Independence Day podcast as Susan Harper, Director of Strategic Partnerships at the American Bible Society, delivers her lecture, The Hebrew Republic and the Origins of America's Constitutional Liberty. Her talk reviewed recent work on the Hebrew Republic and assesses its potential for changing our understanding of religion's role in shaping the modern world. Here now with a portion of her talk at Acton University 2018 is Susan Harper. So American Bible Society, where I now work, was founded in 1816, partly in response to concerns about monstrosities that emerged from the French Revolution, not least a world war that had just concluded with probably seven million dead. The founders of our organization, Elias Boudinot and John Jay, had both been presidents of the Continental Congress. One then led the US Mint, and then the other became the first Chief Justice of the United States. These now eclipsed Federalists, American Bible Society, we call them the Federalists at prayer, felt the power of anti-Biblicism from the French Revolutionary context as a stark negative. Enlightenment philosopher Diderot said, man will never be free until the last king is strangled with the entrails of the last priest. And certainly our revolutionary Federalist founders at ABS had no sympathy for kings, but they're deeply repulsed by French anti-clericalism. And they were also worried that the French revolutionary vision of liberation from tradition would export to America calls to burn the Bible, start with year zero, destroy what's past, and create a new world order. And we understand this vision today as something like the massive hubris that led later to failed communist revolutionary attempts to build a new world order on the ashes of the old. And by contrast, American Bible Society's Federalist founders saw the Bible as the essential key to liberty and progress not the main barrier to it. America's own revolutionary, Thomas Paine, rushed to France in 1792. He was elected to the French National Convention. And then somewhat ironically, from my perspective, he earned the enmity of Robespierre, and he penned his Age of Reason in Luxembourg prison. In his defense of deism, Paine challenged institutional religion and the legitimacy of the Bible. Elias Boudinot, American Bible Society's founding president, answered Paine's Age of Reason with his own defense of Christian beliefs and principles entitled The Age of Revelation. His new Federalist 
Bible organization, launched a great drive to distribute Bibles to all households in America between 1829 and 31. In a national effort to sustain the moral and spiritual health of the body politic in the context of growing skepticism. And so, as we speak, you'll see many dialectics of the contemporary age that are present in these debates, um, although certainly in very different forms and with odd twists. So, for example, Elias Boudno argued that indigenous Americans were really the lost tribes of Israel. Now, the Institute for Advanced Studies, Jonathan Israel, today preaches a secular gospel of enlightenment, according to which a devotion to reason has resulted in liberation from the repressive authority of kings and priests to create a society based on the common good. Uh, I think his perspective is distorted, but I want to say that my purpose today is not to make the silly and historically inaccurate claim that the founders of the United States were all Christians, uninfluenced by secular enlightenment. My purpose today is to review scholarship that complicates this narrative, that deepens our understanding of our historical roots, and that raises questions about assumptions undergirding today's polarized politics. Intellectual historian Mark Lilla argued in his book, The Stillborn God, that by the early 17th century, a great separation took place severing Western political philosophy from cosmology and theology. The new science of Galileo and Bacon, the skepticism of Montaigne, and the horrors of the wars of religion brought the reign of political theology to an end in Europe. With religious arguments banished from political discourse, the West was liberated to develop modern secular ideas of individual rights and a state that embraced religious toleration. Lilla claims that this bifurcation of sacred and secular remains the most distinctive feature of the modern West to this day. Previously, political institutions had been legitimized by scripture, but once God and the Bible were exiled from political theory, politics could focus exclusively on human nature and human needs. One result was the progressive marginalization of the Bible from elite discourse as irrelevant, irrational, and sometimes immoral, the narrative we know so well today. But is or was Lilla accurate? What does history say? Recent studies by Harvard University's Eric Nelson suggest that the Great Separation thesis got things almost exactly backwards with respect to the influence of scriptures on the history of Western political thought and the founding of the United States. It was a deepening interest in scripture rather than a separation from it that created the basis within the history of political thought for the American Revolution and the creation of a state without a king out of the colonies under the British crown. Contra Lilla, Nelson shows that Renaissance humanism was less theological and 17th century political thought was more scriptural than it's normally assumed. And Nelson, along with other scholars that we'll talk about, um, have uncovered Hebrew concepts of Republican government, equality, and toleration that have helped to shape the nation that we know. In his 2010 book, The Hebrew Republic, Nelson argues that it was a 17th century Protestant revival of interest in a radical tradition of rabbinic biblical exegesis that changed the terms of modern Western political thought and crucially influenced Paine, 
and the American Revolution. This development rocked the dominance of the more classical Aristotelian constitutional pluralism, which ranked monarchy and aristocracy with republicanism as legitimate forms of government. You know, that as opposed to the degenerate tyranny and oligarchy and democracy. But instead, in the mid-17th century Republican scholarship um, penned by authors such as John Milton, they made the more radical claim that monarchy was an illicit constitutional form and that only Republican constitutions were legitimate. This is what Nelson calls Republican exclusivism. His book details the intellectual genesis and dissemination of this heterodox rabbinical argument that the Israelite request for a king in 1 Samuel 8 was an instance of the sin of idolatry, heralding the decline of constitutional pluralism and marking a crucial turning point in the history of European thought. Nelson also argues that the Hebrew revival brought covenant and jubilee year-based redistributive agrarian law and religious toleration into the center of Republican politics. So in other words, Nelson finds in ancient Israel some of the key historical arguments for Republican constitutions, redistribution, redistribution of wealth via coercive state power, and religious toleration, all developments normally associated with secular modernity. If, as he suggests, the modern world was to an important degree called into being not by the retreat of religious conviction, but rather by the deeply held religious belief that the creation of such a world as this is God's will, then the traditional narrative will have to be significantly revised, if not discarded, he says. If secular modernity owes several of its key political commitments to an age that was anything but secular, it seems reasonable in light of this scholarship that we re-examine, at least re-examine, some textbook assumptions undergirding the dissonances of our contemporary political discourse. That brings us to the end of this week's edition of Radio Free Acton. Thanks so much for listening. If you have any questions for us or comments or just want to let us know what you'd like to hear about on Radio Free Acton, feel free to send us an email at rfa at acton.org or give us a telephone call at 888-705-4180 and leave us a message. The call is toll-free. Thanks to John Caritas and Ray Notstein for talking with us today about the religious roots of the American founding. If you're interested in owning a copy of Liberty Fund's Political Sermons of the American Founding Era, we've left a link to that in the show page, and you can always go to the Acton Bookshop at acton.org. That's A-C-T-O-N dot org. Thanks for joining us today, and we'll see you on future editions of Radio Free Acton. Have a great Independence Day holiday.